Let's look there at Acts chapter 2. I know that Dave, uh, you know, we, we have, we're in now the series. We're going to be working through the book of Acts. And um, it's, um, it's going to be a real interesting series for us because uh, it's, uh, it's a book that really is, is about to be, you know, the beginning, the real seed development of, the, of our church, of the church as we know it. And um, this, this piece of scripture that we're hitting on today, we're gonna, I'm going to kind of treat it in a little bit of a different way. But I think that it will really be helpful um, for us as we begin to look and really, uh, really kind of pay attention to kind of ra- how Randy opened us up today, which was this whole idea that God's on the move. Okay, that God's not asleep. God is on the move and God is interested in. Um, well, it's very apparent that God's interested in using his church to redeem his people. And it's it's crazy because we're just nothing more than a bunch of messed up, crazy people. Kind of, you know, the cracked pot is what we are. Right. We've talked about that. But we have a perfect message. We have a perfect Lord that lives inside of our lives. Right. And so sometimes that that is that that's kind of that's difficult to understand. But that's what's going on here. So these are this is all what the Lord's doing to establish his church, to really give us the foundation for what it means to be the church. We see here that we're in the middle of a of a great sermon that Peter passionately gives to these people when he says there in verse 37, you know, look there when it says when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever been at that moment where it was just so powerful? God was so all over it that you were just, you were just absolutely ready to, to, to load the truck and move to like anywhere God wanted. Okay? And that was what was going on here. There was this outpouring of what the Lord was doing. And Peter, God was just all over Peter. Verse 38 there where it says, Peter replied, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which now, obviously, this is the first time we really read about the official incoming of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, the promises for you and for your children. And look at that. And for all who are far off. Boy, does that include many of us in this room. For all whom the Lord our God will call. God does do the work. He does call his people. Verse 40, with many other words. Look what it says here. And this is what I wanted to hit on with you. It says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And verse 42, this is what happens now with this, this counterculture, this church now, these people that have come to be absolutely wrecked by the grace of the Lord. And now look what, what, what's going on in their lives. There's this turn, this unbelievable 180 turn that they devoted themselves now to totally different things than they were probably devoted to before they came to know Jesus. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And they were selling their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as he had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Isn't that great to eat together like that with your friends? 
What a beautiful, beautiful way to experience the grace of the Lord, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. There's two things that I want to hit on with you today that I think are really appropriate for us, for all of us, actually. Excuse me. I'm kind of fighting a cold. <clears throat> the first thing I want to talk about is this this thing that Peter uh, talks about. He He talks about here a corrupt generation. What's that? In verse what? 40? Look there in 40. With many other words, he, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What is the way that we view our world? What is the way that you view your world? How do you think about your world around you? Do you think that it's evil? Do you think that it's off-center? All you have to do is really take a look at the television and you'll find out very quickly how off-center our world is. Isn't that true? But Peter here says... He's pleading. I keep getting this. I'm feeling this deeply from him because when it says with many other words, he warned them. Have you ever done this before? He pleaded with them. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What's going on here? I want you to follow with me on this first point. It's, it's going to sound a little academic, but it's important that we get some things because I think it's important that we start thinking a lot differently about how we exist in this world as Christ followers. And I think it's important that we start thinking a lot differently about the world around us. And what I mean by that is this. I think that many times in our lives, we can just be in a big wash. The world around us is going and we're just being washed down the stream with it. Whatever it is they tell me, that's apparently what I've got to think. And that's not what's going on here. This is a group of people that decided to step out of that river and completely go into another river. Counterculture to everything. I looked up corruption. When he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The key words here are guilty of dishonest practices, lacking in integrity, crooked debased in character, depraved, perverted, wicked, evil, infected, tainted. Now, this isn't really, I'm not so sure that this is the problem with us, though, as we sit here today and we see our world, because everybody here probably, well, most of everybody has been raised, a lot of us have been raised in the, in the church where uh, we had the preacher that didn't have a problem beating on us about how bad the world is. And we really heard that message to the point where I think sometimes we reacted and says, well, what then what we are is we are the ones who have the truth and they're the ones out there who are the enemy. So it's kind of this we they understanding, right? We're the ones who are who are who are following the Lord and we're not smoking and dancing and going with the girls that do bad things and or the guys that do bad things. We're we're not doing those things. We're walking around in our white robes and you know, this kind of thing. And so you gotta stay away from all the evil out there, right? 
Well, you, you need to know that the scripture, Jesus, Jesus hung out with a lot of like people in the world. He was in the world. Okay. He wasn't of the world. But he was out there in the world. Okay. We're with our neighbors. You know, the concept here that we've got to maybe remember is that we're not at war with the world. We are at war with what the world values. Right. See, now follow this. The basic, the problem is the basic, what you would call the basic presuppositions that our world holds as valuable. Do you know what a presupposition is? One of my favorite authors is Francis Schaeffer. You should read him. He has many great things to say about why we're at the place we are today in our thinking as a nation, especially speaks to Western culture. And much of the way that we think is really comes from ancient Roman culture and what they thought or ancient Greek culture. And he has this to say about what he, how he defines what you would call presuppositions. Follow this now. The basic, this is a presupposition is this, the basic way an individual looks at life, his very basic worldview, the grid through which he sees the world presuppositions rest upon that which a person considers to be the truth of what exists. So every day as we rub shoulders with a non-believing world, we need to understand that at the foundation of their life, they have presuppositions. They have things in their heart which they consider to be the truth of what exists. And our presuppositions provide the basis for our values and the basis for our decision making. So the statement that as a man thinketh, so is he, is really a profound statement. Because an individual is not just the product of the forces around him. He or she has a mind and an inner world is how God made us. Most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society the way that a child would catch measles. So if you and I were to sit down this next week over coffee, I, were to be, I would begin to ask you some questions. What do you believe that's true about life? You would be spilling out for me in some form the presuppositions that you hold to be true about, that, about life. And more than likely, you've created a whole value system based on those presuppositions. Well, guess what? The world has presuppositions. So when Peter here is stand, stands here in Acts 2, and he's pleading with the people about the corrupt world that they're living in, he's doing far more than what the church has traditionally done decently but not too well. He's going far deeper, I believe. He's attacking the deep presuppositions of a really messed up world. And our world does have deep presuppositions. Some of the things, the way they think, you can, you can see that those are very easily seen. All you have to do, like I said, is turn on the television. What are some of the pre, those presuppositions that I think Peter is attacking? Well, first of all, the first, the first is this. Uh, in Rome, they really had what you would call, one of their presuppositions is, they, I, I would call it wrong God. Wrong God. Okay. Do you know what the Roman God was? This is important to know because it's in context. 
the Roman God was this. That means the city-state. It's where we get our word. Right? Much of the Roman thought and culture was shaped by Greek thinking. It was the Greeks who first tried to build their society upon what they called the city-state. The city-state was comprised of all those who were accepted as citizens, and all values had meaning in reference to the metropolis or the city. But the problem that obviously (laughs) came out of that whole system of the wrong God being the city is the fact that the city provided no real answers for the basic problems of humanity. Just like our America provides no real answers for the basic problems that you have today. They do not. Barack Obama does not possess the answers for your basic problems in life. Don't come up to me after and say, oh, you're not a Democrat. That's not what I'm talking about. George Bush didn't either. The president of the United States doesn't either. And our nation isn't going to save us in any way from the basic problems that we have as people. We can put Barack and George on a car a billion times over. It can look like the Barack car. We can think that we're going to be this unbelievable thing that we're going to finally get the debt in control and everybody's going to serve each other and love each other. That's called the utopian dream. All you have to do is read Stalin to read that. Good grief. You know, read read Tolstoy. I mean, there, there's so much of this that I'm hearing now that it's, it's, it's really like this. It, the wrong God is, if, is America and the leadership of America and the structures that we're going to create in America. And that's part of the problem that's going on here that Peter, when he stands up and he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, he's absolutely understanding that, folks, you have the wrong God. And the question for us today that I'd like to really ask all of us, me included, is do we have the wrong God? Did you know that the, that the Romans and Greeks did not believe in one infinite God? Personal infinite God, which is their second problem. They had, they believed in, and you've heard of this, you've seen in the Greek culture, they believed in many gods, many deities, from Hercules to Aphrodite to whatever the case may be. And this is what Paul talks about later on in Acts when he stands up and he says, I see here at Mars Hill, I see here that you have all these statues of all these gods. And I want to talk about the statue of what? Do you remember what he said? I want, yeah, I want to talk about the statue that says to the unknown God. That's the one I want to talk about because they, he was living, they were living in a pluralistic society with many gods right there at everybody's fingertips. And as this is, as all this is happening, I'm not trying to be Mr. Seminary History Professor here. I'm just trying to give you some kind of context for what Peter is trying to say because the exact sermon that he said back then is the exact sermon we need to hear right now. In many ways, I gotta confess to you, I'm in love with this world. I absolutely want to get an iPhone. Good grief, let me confess it to you. 
I want to get an iPhone. I believe that in some way that's going to organize and change me and help me and do this and do I can get my conversion on my computer. Great, I'll be more organized. I was telling Bill the other day, I said, you know, you know what these, what technology, and that's a God in our culture, by the way. Technology is a God in our culture. You know what technology has done to us, including all of us in this room? It's, it's, it's created an entire life where I'm sitting at a restaurant with somebody and we're actually talking about deep things and, and, and all of a sudden, So all we're doing is literally creating a life. Did you you ever notice that? Me too. It's like I can't even have a moment of silence. Well, oh man, better check see if I've got a text. (laughs) Pretty important. Isn't it the truth? Tell me something. When are we, when are you and I, or when are the people that are sitting in front of me are going to be so important that we are important enough that we can turn that thing off and just engage with each other? Especially with our wives, our friends, our husbands. We have a, we have a distracted culture that's worried about all this stuff that's going on. And, and then we wonder why we can't be in community with each other. Minute our small group's over, we gotta run out, check my messages, get back home, get online. You know? And I, I, I know you, you, you know, you could, <laughs> It's okay for you to get mad at me about it, but I'm, I'm mad at myself about it. And, and we, we have, we, we are living in this world where, where I, I really have a problem with the way I'm processing information from them because I'm buying all in, baby. I'm just, oh, yeah, new iPhone, great. Get, I mean, new, new this. Yeah, oh, you know, I got to get that. If that has to do with money, if that has to do with sex, if that has to do with power, I am living in a world filled with the plurality of many gods sitting in front of me. And this is exactly what Peter is addressing with these people. And one of the things that we're living in, I have to read this to you because it really makes sense to me in light of this massive individualism, this individualistic culture that we, we live in now. Because that's one of the gods that we serve. This man has a really interesting thing to say about the church and about small groups. Listen to it. I think you'll find it interesting. The condition, the operating system, he calls this the operating system of the American life. The condition of individualism along with that of pragmatism forms the operating system that shapes life in America. Like a computer's operating system, our life's operating system dictates how all other programs work. Many churches adopt a small group program and attach it to the operating system of pragmatism and individualism. Instead of abandoning this root operating system for a better one, some churches have tried to develop small group programs that fit the American culture. Small groups and other ministries, listen to this now, it's so good. Small groups and other ministries are adopted to help individuals become all they can be for Christ. The church finds itself ministering to individuals, helping them develop their private beliefs and live as individuals who are faithful before God. 
Small groups as, as a program promotes individual fulfillment for those involved. It promotes personal development. If people so choose to participate, the church then finds itself trying to create the best possible small group program so as to attract as many people as possible. It's so true. Such a program might produce more groups, but it has limited impact on how people live. Individuals meet as a group every week, but they still live in isolation, searching pragmatic answers to personal success. And it's so true. We all do it. What the real answer is for my personal success is I'm going to fix my way. I'm going to think my way out of it. Nobody has to know what I'm dealing with. I'm going to make this thing happen. I'm going to think about it. If I think about it long enough, I've been educated. I got a master's degree. I got a doctorate. Whatever the case may be, I'm going to think my way out of it. And this is the quote that I got. You've got to hear this because this is what's going on here in Acts. They don't become a part of a people who form an alternative society or contrasting city. Did you get that? They don't become a part of a people who form an alternative society or contrasting city, one that lives differently than the culture. Instead, it only propagates the operating system of the culture because it uses the lifestyle of the culture as its measurement for success. And what Paul, what Peter here is talking about is he is talking about when we get down and you start reading here in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to these things. These were a people. They were a people who formed an alternative society or a contrasting. I love that. I love the image of that. A contrasting city. So it's actually the the thought that you would have is this kingdom city that's a city within a city of people that impact their neighbors. There's some way that these people see this new city, this different city. It's not called Nashville. It's called something different. It's alternative. And as they see us, they see that we're this. We actually do love each other. We we do that. We're willing to do that. You follow? And it's and it's it's different, you know, and it doesn't mean good grief. It doesn't mean that you don't go out of here and not buy the iPhone. That's not what I'm talking about. Buy the iPhone. That's great. It's more than that. So that's what we have when we're talking about this corrupt generation. And my, my, I, I've got to give you the second point, but I, I really feel that it's very incumbent upon us, my friends, my brothers and sisters, who I love deeply. You are my peeps. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I love, I love being with you. I told that to Shelly last week. I said, it's great speaking downtown. I love speaking there. It's great. Those, those, those are my people, but these are my peeps. I love coming and speaking to my peeps here. But I got to tell you something. We, we, we cannot, we, it's like, it's like the guy who, the society is going so fast that we're just so fast going beside it that because there's no fixed point, we don't even know what's going on. In other words, everybody else is Formula One. 
and we're on the road too. It's Formula One. We at some point in our lives have to be able, and I think this is one of the things that Lord wants us to do. At some point in our lives, we've got to be able to stop that car and to go, wait a minute, what in the world is going on? What river am I going down? What car am I driving? How am I thinking about this? Is this what God wants me to be thinking about? You follow? And there does, we need, we need to be concerned about it. It's a good thing to think about. The second thing that I want to talk with you about, it's really an interesting sermon. This, and we kind of go from that to now a real devotional kind of a feel. Because I really wanted to pick on this. Look down there in uh, verse 43. This is what I wanted to hit on. Well, first, let me read 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Beautiful things that we need to be committed to as a fellowship. And beautiful things we need to be committed to in our homes with our friends as well. In verse 43, I love this. Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. This. An awe-filled community. What does this look like? Jeremiah 2.19 says this. Listen. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Let me ask you something. What would awe look like in your life? What does it mean to be awe-filled? Have a thought? Anybody? Go ahead. You can say it. What would awe look like? I was awe-filled that the Lord held the rain yesterday for our golf tournament. I was in awe. You were awe-filled. Thank you, Lord, that you held off the rain for the golf tournament. All right, Chad, beautiful. Somebody else? Yes. Maybe like a heaviness to life instead of life being so light and meaningless, there's more meaning hmm. in life. Hmm. Okay. Why were the. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, excellent, excellent. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Joshua. I was standing in my front yard yesterday and there were a hundred potential tornadoes about to touch down. I was in awe. <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? Is any of that stuff that you guys just talked about, it says they were filled with awe. What, what was going on? What does it, what does it mean? Thoughts? What's that? Okay, we have work to do. Yeah. They were, they, you, you, hey guys, that's exactly right, Jane. They, they were, they were seeing God at work. This was like something they were going, you're kidding me. This, 
This is happening. Have you, have you ever had any of those? <laughs> You'd say, not enough. Right? What has robbed us of the beautiful mystery and the wonder and the amazement at our God? We say, where are the miracles and where is the magic? Let me give you a clue where the awe of God is and the miracles are. The wonder is, it's in creation and it's in our relationships. I've had a difficult week, as I'm sure many of you have. Do you know what I was struck by this last week? Was I was struck, I was in awe that the Lord continues to have mercy with me. <laughs> and I was in awe that on Thursday I felt a lot more strength than Tuesday. Ever felt that before? And it was because I'd spent Wednesday, Wednesday in prayer. <laughs> I think I just, Lord, I need everything that you have. John Piper helps us understand awe. He says this. He talks about verse 43 there. He says this. I love it. Fear came upon every soul. A joyful, trembling sense of awe that you don't trifle with the God of the apostles. That is not our experience, though. Today, for most people, including most professing Christians, God is an idea to talk about or an inference for, for, for an argument or a family tradition to be preserved. But for a very few people, is God as, a, as stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, shocking present reality he says, he is tame, he is distant, he is silent. Where are the churches of who Luke could say today, fear, awe, wonder, trembling is upon every soul? Is there such thing as a holy and healthy fear that comes upon my heart as I live this life? Could Peter in verse 38, when he's saying here, Peter is pleading with the people to repent. Maybe that's a key piece to our awe is living in repentance Repentance, somebody said, is the sorrow of forgetting. Think about that. Repentance is the sorrow of forgetting. I've done that even this week. I forgot the mercies of the Lord. I forgot who He is. I forgot what He's done. Repentance is being sorrowful for that. Gratitude is the grace of remembering. Gratitude is a part of our awe as well. I got to read you this Chesterton quote that I that actually Randy found this week, and I, I thought it'd be great to give it to you. And it says this: "To be thankful is the highest form of thought, and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Thanklessness then must be the lowest form of thought, and ingratitude is discontentment bankrupted of wonder." Do you have wonder? Are we in awe of what the Lord's doing in our lives? Are we thankful for it? Awe is the gateway for the community experience, I believe. We're saying to God, God, continue to tell your big story and our small story and let us be amazed. Especially in the littlest of triumphs and the little defeats, 
Let us be repentant of our sins and selfishness. Stun us. Shock us with your redeeming love. Let us scrape our knees with wonder and allow us to live lives of constant gratitude. What do you have today as you sit here today, as we close today, before you leave today, you're going to spend five minutes. What, what do you have to be in awe about for the Lord? It's a good thing for us to be praying about. Let's pray. God, we read these, these things, and I'm the chief of uh, sinners with these uh, truths because I struggle with them. Um, probably a lot of times more than my friends. I just really do. I, I, I have a hard time with um, even looking at my world with any kind of a critical eye because uh, I sometimes love it too much. And um, I have a hard time uh, even bending a knee many times to you and submitting to you and, and really looking to you and being, being hell in a, such a beautiful way fearful of your consuming fire. Lord, I pray that we would be an awe-filled community, that we would live awe-filled lives, that we're expectant of what you're going to do in our lives. And the biggest, the medium, the smallest of things, let us now, as we, as we take time out to pray, just spend deep time with you, good time with you. Renew our sense of awe. Do something great in and through our lives, Lord, in our little community here. We pray this in your name. Amen.